I really do think uh, there is something unified in particular about the collection that also is called the Protestant Old Testament, but Jesus called it the Torah, the Prophets, and the Psalms. So I actually think that collection is actually tight. It's been woven together. That's a particular part of the forest that has, that's all connected in a really important way and respect the integrity of that. However, that part of the forest gave birth to a whole bunch of other stuff that will help us understand that core part of the forest really well. And so, yeah, I mean, it, um, it wasn't until post-Gutenberg, so the printing press, and then some Protestants, because of the Protestant Catholic debates that were beginning to get really fierce in the late 1500s and early 1600s, it wasn't until the early 1600s that you had Bibles being created without the Deuterocanon or the Apocrypha. So just like let, let that register. For three quarters of church history, Christians have been exposed to the core part of the Old Testament and the literature that grew up around it. At the beginning of last year, on the Honest Discussions Facebook group, I'd asked some people, hey, what would you want me to talk about? What are some questions that you have? What are some things about the Bible that just don't make sense to you? The canon of scripture came up a lot, over and over, and via text messages and with some close friends, just the canon, like why these books? Why are my books different? What does this matter? Was this just something that got put together accidentally, haphazardly? Was it tied to empire? Like, why these books? And what do these books have to say to you and I? I'm Seth. You're listening to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. And today I spoke with Dr. Tim Mackey. If you are not familiar with Tim Mackey, you'll hear me reference uh, online a lot, but also in, just in person, like I like the Bible Project. They have a reading app. They have all these YouTube videos. Uh, but what they do have as well is the Bible broken into bite-sized pieces in a way that I can understand them and in a way that my children can understand them. And that's a big thing to hit both sides. One of my favorite things about Tim is he just has a humility and a patience of answering questions from people like myself. So here we are, Tim and I talking about why the Bible is the way that it is, why it's these books, why aren't there other books, and if there are, what does that look like? When we talk about the Bible, what is the narrative pushing us towards? So here we go, a conversation about the Bible with Tim Mackey. Tim Mackey, I'm excited that you're here. Excited to see your face. Big fan. And 
after all these months of planning, I'm I'm glad that we're finally able to get you on. And when I say we, I mean me. We'll use the 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 queenly <laughs> the queenly we. But welcome yeah. to the show, man. Yeah, thank you, Seth. It's good to talk with you. I always take a few minutes at the beginning of each episode. Uh, just in case anyone is unfamiliar with you. And so the other day, I actually put it on Facebook. I was like, hey, I'll be talking to Tim Mackey on this. Does anybody have any questions? But I had a lot of people say, I don't know who that is. To which I said, Google it. And they were like, yeah, I still don't know who that is. So <laughs> in a nutshell, yeah. what would you say it is that is you? Like what makes Tim <laughs> Tim? And then kind of what do you do? Where are you coming from? Yeah, um, let's see. Okay, um, I live in Portland, Oregon. And... I am a professor at a seminary here in Portland uh, called Western Seminary. I teach biblical studies, um, and I've been serving as a pastor, mostly as a, in, in teaching and teaching theology and adult education at, at churches for the last decade or so. Let's see. And then about five years ago, a friend and I started uh, a nonprofit animation studio making short explainer videos about um, biblical theology, themes in the Bible, books of the Bible, and that's gained a lot of momentum. It's called The Bible Project, mm -hmm. and um, we're a YouTube educational channel. That's like where we live in the, on the interweb. And, uh, and so, yeah, we release um, short animated videos that are not for kids, though kids do enjoy them, mm -hmm. but they're really aimed at adults trying to demystify the main themes and the books of the Bible and where it came from and how it works and so on. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing full time now is working with the Bible Project. Do you miss teaching? Although I would argue, um, I watch a lot of those videos that is teaching, but at a different type of, there's, there's less interaction right. unless you want to go into the comments, which it's the internet. Yeah, sure. So you don't want to do yeah. that. Do you miss uh, that portion? Well, I still do quite a bit of teaching. Um, I was st I, I'm still on like part-time at Western, but I just do one class a year. And actually, one of the projects we're doing with the Bio Project now, we're pi it's still a pilot project. It'll release in early 2020. Uh, it's going to be classes. So I'm actually, we have such a large support base now mm -hmm. um, that I'm just teaching the classes that I would teach at Western Seminary, but I'm teaching them at the Bio Project for small groups of our supporters. And then we're filming those, and then we're going to start releasing for free grad, graduate-level Bible classes on, on our website, too, which I'm thrilled about. That the is, classroom is actually my favorite in, environment. Well, I am also thrilled about that. Yeah. The, the video of y'all's, and then I'll get to what I, I really wanted to have you on about. The video of yours yes. that I reference people to the most often is, and it's recent. Mm. I think it's from this, video, from this season. Mm. I say seasons because isn't this? It was September of last year when you. That's right. We're in our fifth, October. Our fifth season of videos. That's yeah. when you know I'm not making it up because I actually know the dates. <laughs> That's right. There was uh, where you did like the Trinity and you're trying to explain like dimensions and how you can only yeah. see different portions at one time. And I'm badly explaining this. Yeah. And so I'll put it in the show notes because <laughs> it's an eight minute video yeah. that I still don't, I struggle to explain. Uh, but that's one of yeah. my favorites because the topic oh, is the topic is dense, the animation yeah. is good. Mm -hmm. And the content is good. So, mm -hmm. yeah. That's great. I'm glad. Yeah, we have added yet another inadequate analogy to uh, the history of people trying to explain God's identity. 
<laughs> it's a helpful, inadequate analogy that helped me take a step further. It's helpful, though, because most analogies I can't explain without saying, you know, picture this and this and this and then this. It's it's at least a physical analogy. So, like, mm. I can I could break it down even if I have props on a bed yes. with a sheet for my kids. You know, yeah. like it's it's yeah. an analogy cool. that actually cool. you can touch. Yeah. Uh, so, I, at least for me, I remember. Anyway. That's right. So, yes. We're, what we're you're referring to is... Imagine you're a two-dimensional person mm -hmm. and a three-dimensional object appeared to you. It would seem impossible. Mm -hmm. Then we say, oh, perhaps uh, God is a like a multi-dimensional type of reality and us poor little 3D creatures, it just breaks <laughs> our categories. Yeah. Anyway, I'm just trying to summarize for your listeners. Yeah, well, I will link to it, but uh, also just picture you and I are three-dimensional and we're reading the book Flat Stanley with your kids. And if you don't have kids yes, and you do yeah, one day, totally. here you My go. Now, now just make that theology <laughs> yeah. and yeah, totally. there, there you Great. go. <laughs> so anyway, mm -hmm. um, I wanted to talk to you about the canon because I get questions and emails often about people of when will you talk about this? And, and so on my list, we were talking a minute ago, uh, for yes. this year, like I, I do want to talk about the solas specifically and rip them apart and just mm -hmm. other portions of the Bible. But a big portion and a lot of understanding that has come to me is uh, the Bible that I have isn't necessarily the same Bible that you might have on that bookshelf behind you or the Bible that a Catholic church down the street may have. Like the Bibles are different. And so yes. when we talk about that, we're talking about the canon and that in itself needs a definition of what the canon is. And so I thought I would start with an easy question of mm -hmm. when I say the Bible, yeah. what am I saying? Like, what does that <laughs> even mean? Yes. Well, um, it turns out that the answer to that question is not simple. <laughs> um, and, I just, and just that, that simple fact is worth just letting it register. When, yeah, when people say the Bible, that's shorthand for a, a whole bunch of things that need to be said really quickly. <laughs> so uh, first, let's just start with, I go to the bookstore, you know, and I encounter a Bible. What that means t for a modern person saying that is I see a whole bunch of thin, usually really like low quality onion paper, thin mm -hmm. pages bound between like plastic cheap pleather or something like that. And it has Holy, Holy Bible written on it. So I'm making fun of the poor quality of most Bibles. Mm -hmm. So, um, <laughs> uh, so that technology, uh, which is called a codex, which is like two covers with a back binding and a bunch of individual pages, you know, stitched or glued together. That's a really old technology. Um, but the Bible is actually older than that technology. So that's called the codex form. And that came into prominence in the first through third centuries after Jesus. The Bible, at least three quarters of the Bible that Christians call the Old Testament is way older than that. And before that form, it didn't ever exist all in one bound form. It existed on scrolls, individual scrolls that could not fit everything. It was a collection of scrolls. So even by using the singular noun, the Bible, <laughs> that's actually not ever what uh, Jesus or the apostles call their Bible. They call it the scriptures, the writings, or Jesus will refer to it as a three-part collection. He'll call it the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms, or later in Jewish tradition called the Torah and prophets and writings. So that's the first like leap we have to do, is to say that the scriptures were a collection of literature that was considered 
by devout Jews before Jesus to be the product of a human and divine partnership. And what's fascinating and what's going to throw all of us for a loop is that Jewish communities before Jesus didn't seem to, because you didn't have two covers binding it, they didn't have a lot of debates or hang-ups about what exact books were in and what books might be related but not necessarily apart and what books are definitely not apart but are really cool and that you should read them because they're all on individual scrolls and so there's a there's a blurriness to the boundaries of this collection that's very ancient and that resulted in different christian once the jesus movement launches you have different groups with different views about what should be in the collection. And that's why you go to the bookstore today and you'll see a Bible that has 66 books, or you'll go and you'll see what's called a, a Catholic Bible that'll have something called the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanon, mm-hmm. and that'll have some more literature. Now, so let me just pause. So that sounds terrifying to people who have grown up in a Protestant tradition. I, I, and I understand that. I didn't. Um, I, I have been roughly, my Christian faith has all been nurtured in that tradition too. And I'm proudly a Protestant. But th- we do, like, it's a historical fact that we have to recognize that the Bible has taken multiple shapes in different communities throughout its history. And we need to honor, I actually think we need to honor that fact. What do you it mean honor? Us, uh, like, um, like how, I, it, how, like, rip that I, apart. I think it tells us something beautiful about how God has chosen to work <laughs> in history but I, it's not like, um, I don't think, there's nothing to be scared of here. That's my point. We need to honor it and let incorporate that fact into our view of what, what the Bible is, how it came into existence. Okay, that was kind of a longish, maybe too long <laughs> answer. But, and it opens up a t- a many cans of worms that I'm happy to maybe pull some of them out. I have many worms. Something that I latched onto there, you said that, you know, in, in a more ancient context, there wasn't this, uh, what's the right word? They didn't. There wasn't as much nuance around, no, this book is in and this book is not in, and this book is in and this book is not in. Like you said, they didn't argue as much about it as what we would. So why? Was there a lack of importance? Was it, I don't know how to read? Like, wh- like what is it? It has to do with what these texts are about and how and why they came into existence in the first place. So maybe one metaphor uh, would help. I think many of us come... And I'm just right now, I'm just talking about the first three quarters of the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures the old, or the Old Testament. That's all I'm talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Many of us think about that these books came into existence in a similar way that if like you went to like a, a garden nursery and you go out to like the outdoor part of the nursery and you, and you go to like the tree section. And, you know, they're all like potted. They're in these big plastic pots. Some of them are small. Some of them are big because maybe they're a little older, but they're all self-contained and independent, and they're scooched together in, like, groups. You know, here's the poplars, here's the pines, here's this kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And so uh, many of us think about the books of the Bible, and again, it's because the way we encounter them, they're, um, here was where Exodus begins. Oh, there's like a, a blank white page between that and Genesis. Well, that must be a separate book. Now I'm in a different book. And, right, or I'm in the book of Joel, and we call them books, which makes us think of a different author. They have mm-hmm. different, some of them have different names. 
And so we think they have in, independent origins and existence and so on. Uh, just like those plant, those trees, uh, all are independent and not connected to each other. However, if you pay really close attention to what the books themselves within the Bible tell us about how they came into existence, they give us a very different story. And then when you pay attention to the manuscript history of these texts, they give us a different story. Um, they give us a story that's much more like you go out backpacking and you go maybe to Colorado uh, and you go into an aspen a grove of aspen trees. And aspen trees are awesome because a whole forest can grow up of dozens, a hundred, a thousand trees, and they're all connected as one organism. They're all genetically connected. And some of them are taller, some of them are bigger. Some of them have branches going, you know, they look different above the surface, but they're all deeply interconnected and they all begin from the same root. Mm. And, and that is much more of the process of how this literature came into existence. So, uh, so just think of steps here. Um, stuff happened. Right? <laughs> There's this family connected to Abraham and crazy stuff happened to them. Uh, you know, just crazy stuff happened. And they have an encounter with uh, the God who, who reveals himself as Yahweh. I mean, just write the stories that are in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Abraham is on the scene somewhere in the 17, 1800s BC. I mean, the alphabet's just being invented at that point in history, you know? Like, nobody knows how to read and write except paid Egyptian scribes who can spend their lives learning hieroglyphics and stuff like that. So the alphabet's just being invented. So we have a long period of the family of Abraham where their history is being preserved orally through oral traditions, which is still true of many cultures today. And so for generations, that's how these events are being and memories are being preserved about their family. Um, Moses, it's not till you get to Moses that you get the first mention of the writing of the Bible in the Bible. Um, and it's where he's at Mount Sinai. Mm. And it's where God appears in the smoke and fire and Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. And God makes a covenant with him. That's the first time that writing is mentioned in the Bible, which I think is fascinating. So then, so it all revolves around Moses. And then from Moses, he's, you know, a part of this family. So you have to imagine he's inheriting all of this oral history. Um, he's committing to writing many of the things that are uh, in what we call the first five books of the Bible, but he's not writing all of it. He certainly didn't write the last chapter of Deuteronomy because it says, and no one knows where Moses is buried till this day. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> including including yeah. me, Moses. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> um, so, cl so clearly, um, even the books where Moses appears were shaped by people after Moses. The last chapter tells you that. And so this is what I mean in terms of the forest. So if you go into an Aspen forest, the tallest trees in the stand are the Moses trees. <laughs> and they're connected to the first five books of the Bible. And then for Moses, Moses' whole thing was, man, these people don't really want to follow the God who rescued them out of Egypt. He wants to bless all of the nations through them. They are not very good at following him. And so what you have throughout Israel's history is a minority of leaders who are faithful to the God who rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. Most Israelites want to be Canaanites. 
and Babylonians and follow the other gods and so on. Yeah. And so the whole complex history of Israel, you have a minority view, a minority report of prophets, of priests, of some kings who want to follow the God of Abraham. And that's where the Bible comes from. It's from this minority group within ancient Israel, and they come to be called the prophets. And they are both shaping this family history, and it's also coming into existence. Uh, and new books are being added and written, but it's all happening in this, in this minority group within ancient Israel. And so you get to like the famous stories of Elijah or the prophet Jeremiah or Ezekiel. I mean, people hate these guys. Nobody wants to listen to them. <laughs> and they're the ones who are protecting and, and cherishing these traditions and these texts yeah. throughout history, the small group of prophets. And so something really important happened when Israel went into the exile in Babylon. Babylon came to Jerusalem, took them out, took thousands of Israelites as slaves in Babylon. And something happened there where the final like forest, there was a burn <laughs> in the Aspen forest and it burned all the trees at the same time. And then they all started regrowing from that root. And then when they're regrowing, they're totally interconnected. And so this is why um, the collection that we call the Old Testament is like reading Wikipedia pages that are all hyperlinked to each other. They're constantly quoting and interconnected <laughs> and they're actually growing and coming into their shape that we know them as at the same time. Yeah. That leads me to a question that someone had asked. So he had specifically talked about the Babylonian exile. And so what yeah. he said was, he's like, do we know if there was a Jewish canon before the Babylonian exile? And then how do we know what the Hebrew Bible consisted of, you know, during the years of exile to the Septuagint? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We have no idea. What we have is, <laughs> what we have is what we can read about in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Hmm. Uh, and this is tricky because even saying the Jewish Bible, the, the, the story the Old Testament's telling us is that most Israelites, for most of their history, could have cared less about the Bible. Hmm. They, cared, they could have cared less about the, the tradition of Moses and following God of Abraham. And Would that also be the case for the New Testament Christians following you know, the way of Christ? Would, would those early, early, you know, the church fathers, would they also have, quote unquote, you know, cared less about the Bible? Because the reason I ask that is... Yeah. I often get told the, you know, this, this Bible is, I don't hold Tim uh, to an inerrant view, at least not the way that most people mean the word literally inerrant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's just too much, I mean, going back through the, from what, from the minimal amount of research that I'm able to understand that I do, you know, there, there are parts where people will, you know, change things and add things and stuff that were in the margins on this manuscript that now get moved over into the Bible on this manuscript. And then we take it from there. So do the early, mm -hmm. did the early, early Christians have that same, uh, I guess, lack mm -hmm. of, not lack of regard, but lack of mm -hmm. sterility? Well, uh, let's pause, let's pause on the New Testament. Mm. For the moment. How dare you? <laughs> uh, for me, it's helpful to really keep things separate. Perfect. We're, we're okay. in the pre-Jesus pre mm -hmm. phase of the story. But what we can say is that the, what, however the Bible comes into existence, it comes into existence over a long period of time with lots of people involved, not just the main characters that are named in the story, um, but a whole crew of unnamed scribes and prophets that, uh, that, that claim 
that God is using them to produce these texts so that what these texts are communicating is what God wants his people to hear. Now, you can reject or accept that claim, but that is the claim that this literature makes about itself. And I'm inclined to accept that claim because I'm a follower of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that's what Jesus thought about, about the Hebrew scriptures. So how exactly, at some point in the late post-exilic period, we're talking like the 300s, 200s AD, you've got the basic collection that Jesus is referring to called the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And it corresponds to the uh, Protestant Old Testament that, that you have. However, what Jewish scholars and scribes continued to do was to read and reflect and to produce new texts. And there's a whole body of literature that's wonderful and fascinating. It's called Second Temple Jewish Literature, sometimes called the Apocrypha and mm -hmm. Pseudepigrapha. Mm -hmm. And what these texts are doing is it's like it's the remix phase. <laughs> Every single one of them is hitting is are producing remixes of the scriptures for a new audience and for a new day. And they do it in very creative, in very creative ways. So you'll get a book like Judith, which is in the Catholic Deuterocanon. And Judith is the prophetess Deborah and David and Elijah and Daniel, all mixed into one character. And she overcomes by pr prayer and a clever plan. She overcomes bad guys who represent Babylon and Assyria and Persian, all in, in one characters. In other words, Judith is a work of biblical theology. It shows us an ancient Jewish reader of the Bible who's bringing together the themes of the Bible by creating an, a brand new text. And that's what I mean about the blurry boundaries. Mm -hmm. The books in the Catholic Deuterocanon, there's nothing Catholic about them. They're just ancient Jewish literature that was inspired by the Bible. So this is going back to what I mean. Ancient Jews didn't have the hang-ups that we do about a book like Judith. Is it in the collection? Is it out of the collection? It doesn't. It's awesome. That's <laughs> what it is. <laughs> and all it is is a remix of stories that are in the primary collection, namely what Protestants call the Old Testament. So that's what I mean. I think the forest metaphor is helpful, is to say there is a real center of the forest. It's what Protestants call the Old Testament. But that forest gave birth to lots of other texts that are close, really, really close in time to the final formation of the Old Testament. And we don't need to make a decision. Is it part of the collection? Is it not? It's inspired by it, and it can give us insight into the core collection. And to me, what really opened my eyes to this was that Jesus and the apostles are familiar not just with what we call the Old Testament, but they're familiar with the whole forest. And, the, and they actually, the apostles and Jesus will quote from and allude and borrow language from the literature in the whole forest, not just in the Old Testament. And once I realized that, I was like, oh, I'm asking the wrong set of questions when I'm saying is something in, is something out? At a certain stage, at a, at a later stage, what is it in or is it out becomes important for the New Testament. It's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But for the Old Testament, the Aspen Forest metaphor has, has been really helpful for me. Then building off of that to the New Testament, 
Yes. Which I know, I feel like I know more about the New Testament, but probably because growing up in a Protestant-based church, we only we only talk about mostly Paul, and then every once in a while something else, and then back to Paul, and then something else, yeah. and then back yeah, to Paul, sure. and then yeah. something else. Yeah, one of the favorite books that I read last year uh, is by uh, Robbie Williamson out of Arkansas. He wrote a book like The Forgotten Books of the Bible, and it's Song of Songs, uh, Esther, uh, Esther, Ecclesiastes, like the books that we just don't talk about because yeah, yeah, sure. we just don't preach on these. And so don't forget, yeah. these books yeah. have purpose and they have meaning and they have reasons to be here and yeah. they're instructive. Yeah. Specifically Ecclesiastes, I like the way he ripped it apart, but I've rabbit trailed. So how then did we get to where we're at now? Where if it's not these 66, like how do we get yeah. to pick and choose? And, and I guess more specifically, who gets to vote? Who is at CBS you know, running the survivor show of the canon of you're voted off the island. Yes. You're not voted on the island. Um, and another question specifically is, is there any matriarchal voice in that? Um, which was a question that repeatedly came to me as, is this yeah. all from a voice of a male or does that, is that uh, even a good question or uh, is there any, is there any female yeah. voice involved in that that yeah. has maybe been yeah. suppressed or is, is it just, no, no, Seth, there was no female voice, but how does, how does all those voices combine and kind of how are they weighed and measured for their qualifications? And then mm-hmm. what is the, nope, you're blackballed off the island. Get out of this. Mm-hmm. So I know we said we're going to move on to the New Testament, but I'm not. I'm going to go back for a second. <laughs> um, so uh, when, it, when it comes to the, to the Hebrew scriptures, for me, the reason I read that, I read those texts isn't because I just find ancient Hebrew literature interesting, mm-hmm. although now I do, but most people don't. The reason I read that is because I follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. And Jesus explained who he was in the light of the, the story that those texts are telling. Mm-hmm. I mean, he actually made it so clear that if you don't understand these texts, you don't understand him or anything he's saying. What he says is often so cryptic or just, it's like watching the third Lord of the Rings movie without even knowing that movies one and two exist. Right. <laughs> it's just like, it's absurd. <laughs> and that's, it's very, very similar. So when I look at the patterns of how Jesus and his followers that he deputized called the apostles, when I look at what they're reading and what they appeal to the most, what they appeal to are the books that are in what's called the Protestant Old Testament. Mm-hmm. They never quote from the other Jewish texts in the same way. They'll borrow language, they'll borrow phrases, but they don't quote from, in, the, in a way saying, thus the scriptures say, that kind of thing. So to me, that's significant. I want to read the whole forest of literature, but I, I care about these specific texts, what Jesus means when he to- talks about the Torah and the prophets. Okay, so Jesus comes onto the scene, and more crazy stuff happens, right? Just like with Abraham and so on. So um, Jesus does what he does. He makes a claim that the whole storyline of God and Israel, as it's interpreted in the scriptures, is coming to fulfillment in him through his death and his resurrection. And however, Jesus is just one guy in one place. And so what he does, even just a year or so into the kingdom of God movement that he starts is he appoints or deputizes a circle of close followers, disciples that he's training and they're following him everywhere. They're memorizing his teachings. He gives them the same spiritual power and authority that, that he has. And so we call these the 12 or the, you know, the disciples, they come to be called the apostles. So there's an important move there for the origins of the new Testament. What we call the new Testament is that Jesus deputized 
a, a circle, a small circle, but a circle of people to represent him, to represent his teachings, to go be his voice and presence in a place where he couldn't go. That's why he would send them out on trips, and then they would come back to him. And so you can read this Matthew chapter 10 mm-hmm. and so on. So in a way, what's happening there is the key seed being planted for what we call the New Testament. It's the circle of closest followers of Jesus who are authorized by him and empowered by him to represent him to groups that Jesus himself wouldn't ever go to. And so once Jesus is executed and then he's seen alive again, um, what we have in the four accounts in the New Testament of the Gospels are different ways that different moments, especially in um, Matthew, Luke, and John, where we have memories preserved of how Jesus commissioned these people to go now represent him out to Israel, to the nations, and so on. And so, in a way, the New Testament is just an outworking of, of that commission. So the 27 books that are in our current New Testaments are the oldest Christian literature. Um, they're the books that—they're um, the oldest, and they're the books that claim both, both within themselves and people debate about circumstantial evidence around them. But, but nobody debates that they're the oldest texts. Right. Um, there are lots of other early Christian texts. And some of them were really popular. And some of them people tried to make arguments for, like, this should be in the core collection of Christian literature. But what we have in these 27 texts, I, here's, here's what, well, there's another question. But to me, that's a, that was a helpful concept when mm-hmm. I was introduced to it, just let, to let that register. Jesus commissioned a group of people to represent him. What these texts are are the earliest Christian texts that stem back from that circle of people that he commissioned to represent him. Where were you about to go? So oh, what I was about to go was to say that all of the, and I should put a footnote, I have a lot more reading on homework to do on New Testament canon formation, but everything I've worked on up to this point, what later councils of like old men and white beards, you know, who are... <laughs> you know, having debates and hired by Constantine and so on. None of these councils, as I understand them, are deciding what's in the contents of the Bible. What they're doing is surveying what are people reading? What is the universal church practicing in its weekly worship? What are the texts that have risen to the top? And what rises to the top are our 27. And then there's a handful of others that are really popular too. And so that's where the Shepherd of Hermas, what's called First Clement, he was a really important bishop. So, I mean, it's a pretty small list, actually. But so the debates aren't like, okay, it's they're not like the nursery, the garden nursery. Okay, we got a whole bunch of trees now. Which one should we put in? Mm, I wonder, you know, well, I vote for this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a groundswell. It was like YouTube. It was like the viral books, <laughs> books that went viral, uh, are the ones that came from the earliest part of the movement. And what the later councils are debating isn't what's in and what's out. It's how do we bring together the church around this core collection of literature? And it was messy. Uh, it, I mean, it wasn't 
it, this took many councils over many, many decades in a century or two. So I'm not trying to make it sound more yeah. tidy than it actually was. But those two concepts were helpful for me. Jesus commissioned a group. These texts are the earliest ones that come from that group. And it took the church quite a while. Um, it took the texts a long time to spread also. Right. You know, I mean, they didn't have the Internet. They had the Roman roads, which were pretty darn awesome. But it might take many decades for the Gospel of Mark to make it to North Africa and to Greece and to, you know, out to Asia or India. Stuff took a while. And so not everybody had the 27 books that we have all in one place in those first centuries. They likely had a, it was a growing collection. Maybe Because the name of the show is Can I Say This at Church, this might sound like an off-putting question, but it's genuinely the one that pops into my mind. So I hear you saying, you know, these people are talking about what is deeply impacting them. And that's honestly, I think that's why it would be so messy. Like if I have this book that is deeply helping me connect and, and hear God and, you know, do things that are fruitful, and then you want to tell me, you know this other person yet. No, there's not enough other people reading that. It's obviously you're just too tertiary for us to include it in the core teachings. Mm. So Mm -hmm. that would get deeply personal the same way that Mm -hmm. the fact that the Cowboys can't win a playoff game that also gets deeply personal for me. You know, it's just, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm tired of the Patriots. Obviously they're the viral, they're the canon of, of the NFL for lack of a, of of an awful metaphor. Um, so that's right. And, and, and low grade, Stuff can rise to the top. Yeah, nobody wants the Browns <laughs> in the canon. Yeah, sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> Except yeah. for the Browns. Go, go, Dog Pack, um, or whatever they call themselves. <laughs> so, is there a case to revisit that? Not that I necessarily want to, because these texts. I'll say. So, one of my favorite versions of the Bible that I have is Bibliotheca, and I, I don't know if you've read that version of the Bible. Have you? Mm-hmm. Have you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, those are the nice hand-bound ones. Yeah, single but yeah. what I like yeah. is. A, all the other texts that aren't in the normal Bible are there, but B, they're not necessarily in the same order either, and so I see things differently. And then yeah. C, yeah. I don't really know when I start and stop. So similar we were talking about at the beginning, you know, it's you just flip a page, there's blank space, and we've moved on. And so yeah. when I read the text that way, yeah. more narrative, yeah, I guess that's the best way to say it, it changes yeah. the text. And so is there a case to say we should look at doing this again. Like we should reevaluate and intentionally mm-hmm. teach these other texts that we haven't taught in a while and mm-hmm. see where the church is. Or is that an unfair question? <laughs> well, I, I'm, uh, there's two questions. One is um, how do we respond to um, uh, this particular... So I'm again, I, I came to faith in the Protestant tradition. Mm-hmm. So I really do think uh, there is something unified and particular about the collection that also is called the Protestant Old Testament, but Jesus called it the Torah, the prophets, and mm-hmm. the Psalms. So I actually think that collection is actually tight. 
It's been woven together. Leave it alone. Well, not leave it alone, but just that's that's a particular part of the forest that has that's all connected in a really important way and respect the integrity of that. However, right. that part of the forest gave birth to a whole bunch of other stuff that will help us understand that core part of the forest really well. And so, yeah, I mean, it, um, it wasn't until post Gutenberg, so the printing press, and then some Protestants, because of the Protestant Catholic debates that were beginning to get really fierce in the late 1500s and early 1600s, it wasn't until the early 1600s that you had Bibles being created without the Deuterocanon or the Apocrypha. So just like let, let that register. For three quarters of church history, Christians have been exposed to the core part of the Old Testament and the literature that grew up around it. Well, that just makes so, me cynical. Like, why? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, it should just say, like, it's just, this is the way history works. Yeah. And if we want to recover um, the whole literary tradition that the Old Testament gave birth to, um, we should, you should read this literature called the Apocrypha. Because it's fascinating. It is. And it's awesome. It's really <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. And it enriches your reading of the Old Testament. Jesus grew up knowing this literature, and the apostles, uh, including Paul, show that they have knowledge of this literature, too. There's nothing threatening here. It's more that we need to just uh, re reframe our, our categories. When it comes to the New Testament, I do think the, the, the viral YouTube analogy does break down, though, because really bad videos can rise to the top. Right? Fair enough. Fair but, enough. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, there, I think there's a handful of factors at work. One is widespread popular. Another is the fact that these books were connected to that inner circle of Jesus, which is almost certainly why it was that they spread. You know, and Paul's letters, it's very obvious, you know, he, he writes his, his name at the beginning of them. Um, the Gospels are technically anonymous, like nowhere in the Gospels do you get, hey, I'm Matthew, here I am. And um, uh, but the traditions about them being connected to Matthew um, uh, and John, Mark and Luke were not a part of that 12 circle, but they were a part of the second generation who worked with the first crew. You know, and people debate those traditions, but I think there's good reason to, to take them at face value. So for me, again, I want to, just like there's a core to the Hebrew scriptures— that I want to honor it, but also recognize it gave birth to a lot more. There's a core collection that is, is what we call the New Testament, and that also gave birth to a circle of early Christian literature around it that is really fascinating and important. And I don't, I don't personally treat it and engage it on the same level that I do and with the same expectations, but I do think that I need should be familiar with it. Because most Christians, for most of church history, were reading the whole forest, um, not just the core, yeah. the core collections. Yeah. So I'm not saying there isn't a core. I'm just saying the division between the core forest and the other trees that grew out of it was a lot less important for most of earlier generations of church history. Yeah, and so I'll stretch your forest metaphor a little bit further because I've been thinking about it in the back of my yeah. brain. Uh, I live at the edge of the Shenandoah National Forest, like literally 
and, and then the uh, on one end, and then the other edge is the George Washington National Forest, like right where the two intersect yeah. here in Appalachia. Yeah. Uh, and so, I know as you hike into the forest, it grows more and more and more dense and more and more quiet. I guess is a good word, but I think quiet yeah. is is a good way to think about medi- uh, meditating on scripture. But as you enter there's civilization there and things to that don't necessarily push against you. And the closer that you get to the core, yeah, there's yeah. more brambles, there's more overgrowth, overgrowth. There's, there's just more there. It's just more huh, dense. Huh, huh, huh. I'm going to steal it. I'm going to take it. I'm going to make it mine. <laughs> you can do the same. It doesn't matter. I have two, I have two more questions. Yeah, uh, sure. One is, is probably going to go over some people's heads. And so I'm sorry, but it's, it's a question that someone asked me and I like it. And so I'm going to make it here. So yeah. one guy yeah. asked, why do Protestants and Catholics most typically use translation of the old Testament based on the Masoretic text other than the, and he used Roman numerals here, the LXX, which I believe is a Septuagint, correct? In worship, Bible study, and exegetical work. Like, why mm-hmm. are we, why do we lean towards, I guess, the Masoretic text as opposed to the Septuagint mm-hmm. text? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what that question means <laughs> uh, is, the, uh, for the Old Testament, these texts were all written in Hebrew about 200-ish years before Jesus. Jewish scholars down in Egypt uh, began realizing, like, oh, man, everybody's speaking Greek. Uh, we have Jewish kids who, like, don't even know Hebrew anymore when they grow up. <laughs> so they produced, over the course of about a century, a, a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into uh, Greek. That became really popular and widespread, because as you get closer to the time of Jesus, everybody's speaking Greek. And so when the Jesus movement started, it was from the beginning a bi- and trilingual uh, movement and community. People mm. spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and probably and Latin as well, so quad, quadlingual. And it was multinational, you know, uh, pretty much from just about 50 days after uh, people saw Jesus alive from the dead at Pentecost. So what happened was that translation became widely popular in the early Jesus movement. In fact, it became the main way that followers of Jesus encountered the Bible in the Greek-speaking world. About 300 years after Jesus, that Greek translation was translated into Latin. And then that Latin translation was then corrected by somebody who knew Hebrew, a guy named Jerome, Mm -hmm. and that's called the Vulgate. And then that Latin Bible became the Bible of Western Christianity for a millennium. <laughs> right. So okay. I, I hope Jerome knew what he was doing. <laughs> totally. So the question is, why shouldn't just the Greek and Latin Bible be the Bible of, of Christianity? Well, here's what's interesting, is when you look at Jesus and the apostles, they were familiar with the Greek rendering of the Bible. They often use it in their quotations. But it's also very clear that at the core, they, they knew it in the Hebrew. And this is a Protestant thing, and it actually has to do with concepts of inspiration. <laughs> and I actually resonate with it to a certain degree. I'm a follower of Jesus and of who he is mediated to me by the apostles and his earliest followers. And Jesus knew his Bible in Hebrew. He knew his Bible in Hebrew. Um, that's the Bible that he was raised on. That's the Bible that he had memorized. That's the Bible that he prayed, you know, every night. 
and that's the Bible that that I think where he discovered his identity and discovered who he was as he was growing up, and understood his vocation and mm. what it, he was called to do. And so, if that's the case, I think there is a special privileged place of the original language of these texts that that were so important to Jesus. And historically, that's where Protestants have landed, is that the original language is going to get us closest to the meaning that the, these authors wanted to communicate. And uh, it's important to know the whole history, though. I ended up doing my dissertation on the Greek and Hebrew versions of the book of Ezekiel, hmm. um, comprehensively mapping out all their differences. Dude, it's so interesting. How many <laughs> so are there? Well... It depends on what I, I focused in on where there's an additional word or a missing word or phrase. Uh, and there's in the ballpark of 400 mm. uh, differences. So not a small number, a significant right. number. But what those differences are doing is so awesome and tells us so much about the final shaping of the Aspen Forest that is the Hebrew Bible. But that's for another day. <laughs> So there you go. That, that's why the, the Hebrew Bible, which is what that question is calling the Masoretic text, has been privileged. And I think there's a good case to be made for saying, if I want to understand an author on their terms, I should probably read in the language that they wrote. That's what Jesus knew the Bible in. That's what I'm going to go to. But we should also honor the fact, just like we should honor the bigger Aspen Forest, we should honor the fact that most Christians for most of church history have known the Bible in the Greek or Latin translation. And so we should understand what developments and changes happened in those translations too. And, and there you go. Yeah. So the final question, just because I like to end on Jesus more often than not, and I usually don't, yeah. sometimes I don't actually lately, yeah. Tim, I've always asked the question because of some of the topics of conversation, like, is there hope that the church for my kids is even a healthy place to be? And that's a mm -hmm. paraphrase of the question. And I don't want to necessarily ask you that, although you can answer it if you want. Yeah, But it's disheartening to find so many people go, I don't know, but whatever that church is, it looks probably very little like church does today, which is mm. scary and not, mm. why, not why we're here. But So mm. if we talk about the metaphor of an aspen forest, and then I hear you often you know, in your videos, and uh, you've got other podcasts that you've been on, and Exploring My Strange Bible is one of my favorite podcasts, specifically because I do it when I do housework. <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, that's when I do my podcast listening to. Uh, yeah, I, I literally listened to, there was like an entire series. I think you were talking about Jonah and Nineveh and then yeah. breaking it apart. And then yeah. I, what did you say? I'm a badly paraphrased, but I'm out there painting and staining. And you're like, it wasn't that John, Nineveh was here. It's like, it's as far as you can go in the known earth. And so he's not escaping <laughs> to some arbitrary place. Like I want yeah. to leave the planet and mm -hmm. I, you won't let mm -hmm. me leave. And I'm sitting there painting and go, I didn't know this. I didn't know this. <laughs> so what is that Aspen forest? And so we'll call that scripture. What is mm -hmm. that pointing to? Which I know you argue, and I would agree, is Jesus. Mm. But how is that forest at the root level interwoven? Where if we could look underground, we're looking at it and be like, oh, I see. Mm. I see. This, this is Jesus. And it's always been Jesus. Yeah. Well, you know, the first three quarters of the Christian Bible uh, doesn't belong only to Christians, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the Hebrew Bible. And it's actually also the scriptures in two other religious traditions, the one that it came to existence in, Judaism, and then after Christianity in Islam, too. Mm -hmm. They have a, a, an important place for the Hebrew scriptures in, in, in their Bible literature. So 
that's just important to recognize. So anytime a religious community says, this is what the Hebrew scriptures are about, you're making a controversial claim. Because mm-hmm. there are multiple communities that claim that it means different things. Am I misquoting you? I feel like I'm nope. not. Okay. No, no, you're not. No. <laughs> okay. I'm just, I'm just saying we need to, in the modern world, we sure. need to be honest with that fact. Okay. However, um, I think that Jesus was right. Um, namely, that these texts, and I'm referring to the Hebrew Bible, Jews call it Tanakh, uh, Old Testament, the Torah, prophets, and writings. The way that these texts are designed is as a composite unity. So it's a diverse collection of literature from the whole history of Israel's history. But as those circles of prophets from Moses all the way for over a millennium were shaping, editing, compiling, adding new, crafting, um, they engaged in in a series of literary conventions to unify the whole collection around a core set of themes. And lo and behold, those core themes are introduced in the first 10 pages of the first scroll, <laughs> what we call Genesis 1 through 11. Um, in Genesis 1 through 11, the whole storyline is anticipated. Even its resolution is anticipated in seed form. Uh, and it has to do with humanity uh, appointed as, as these image, image bearers of the creator, creatures in whom heaven and earth meets. God and humanity meet together, and God appoints them to rule and steward over the creation, but to trust his wisdom about good and bad. The humans don't want to trust wisdom about good and bad. They want to take it for themselves. And then the story just goes downhill really quick um, uh, in terms of violence and self-destruction. And the exaltation of human-made empires exalting our definitions of good and bad to divine status, and then we begin killing each other over our different definitions of good and bad. Um, this is what ba- Babylon is in the Bible. And h- However, on page 3, in Genesis chapter 3, um, when God informs the humans of the consequences of their bad decisions, he says that a seed is going to come, um, which in Hebrew can be a plant or a child, Uh, A seed is going to come who's going to reverse the self-destruction of humanity and is going to reverse and overcome the power of evil that humans have given into. And it's a little poem in Genesis 3.15 that says, the seed of the woman is going to destroy evil at its source while being bitten and destroyed by it. And in that little two-line poem, Genesis 3.15, the entire storyline of the Bible is both anticipated and its resolution is, is pointed to. And basically, the rest of the Hebrew Bible is just replaying, kind of like Star Wars. <laughs> You've watched movies in the Star Wars universe, all, and you're kind of like, of I've been here before. But the characters are different. It's never identical. Yeah. There's three different Death Stars, you know, but, <laughs> but it's never the same. This time it's a it's planet. Always, Spoiler yeah. alert. This time <laughs> <Yeah>. it's a planet. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyhow, it's like, the, it's like that. Where um, this, is how, this is how most of the classics in Western literature work is patterned story worlds that repeat generation after generation, both repeats, but also intensifies the things of the past. And the whole Hebrew Bible is working in that direction. And so 
the four gospel accounts of Jesus have been designed precisely to plug right in to the narrative that the Hebrew scriptures are developing and presenting Jesus as the the one who overcomes evil by letting evil overcome him and overcoming it with, with his life and with his love. And so that's what I mean. The unifying center, I think, of the whole Bible is Jesus. Hmm. And, well, actually, I'll just say it this way. Post-Jesus, I can say that. Pre-Jesus, I think Jews were sitting around reading these Bibles saying, I'm waiting for the snake crusher to come, who's going to crush evil. We're waiting for the new Moses. We're waiting for a new David. We're waiting for the prophet who is to come. We're waiting for the Messiah. And the Gospels are saying, yeah, Jesus, he is that one that the, the Hebrew Scriptures were pointing to. So for me, that's how the whole collection makes sense. Yeah, That's what it's about. And that's why I read it, is because it helps me understand Jesus. I've learned to read other ancient texts and appreciate them, and Egyptian and Ugaritic and Canaanite texts. I mean, it's cool stuff, man. Yeah. But like, at the end of the day, I, really, I just want to follow Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I want to follow him with more passion and love people the way that he did and know his love that can change me. And that's why I read these texts because yeah. they have a unique power to introduce people to Jesus that can change their lives and change whole communities. And these texts have been doing that for thousands of years. Yeah. And that's why we're still talking about them on yeah. the other side of the planet 2000 years later. So uh, all of the historical debates aside, the Bible isn't just something you learn about and put in your pocket. It's, it's mediating a real person to us that's waiting for us to respond, not just to debate about. Um, and if we haven't done that personal response, then it's like, ah, why read it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Something else, yes. you know. Point people in the right spot, Tim. Where do they go to, where do we send people? The Bible, you can just Google the Bible Project, mm-hmm. um, or our website is thebibleproject.com, and there you go. That's where you'll find ev- everything. If you're interested in uh, taking your Bible learning to the next level, uh, the videos um, can be a helpful place to do that. But once you get into the website, we have actually whole web pages about every book of the Bible mm-hmm. with other videos and resources, um, recommended reading and stuff. So it, it's really kind of a whole Bible resource website. Absolutely. So the links to those will be wherever you l- read the things, people. But Tim, thank you for making the time to come on. I'm glad we can yeah, make so it happen. I would yeah, love totally. in seven or eight more months, we'll start planning it now and we'll, we'll maybe do it again <laughs> yeah, and, and talk about other yeah. parts of the forest. But genuinely, yeah. um, I appreciate the work that you're doing and I really appreciate you making the time to come on. Yeah, Seth, absolutely. Yeah, happy to talk. Move along the river Sun like gold, moon like silver Oh, sweet change Use your voice and call out to me Tell my body where my heart should Every conversation that I do, I'm always sad when it ends. But there is genuinely so many things that I didn't get to ask Tim that I wanted to. And so maybe another time. But I learned so much from that. And I really like the metaphor of the forest. And 
you know, the Torah and the central core beliefs that Jesus would have known and everyone else would have known as the middle of the forest, the densest part of the forest, the oldest part of the forest, the most rooted part of the forest when we're talking about scripture. I really thought about it that way, and I, I do like the analogy. If you didn't at the beginning, and if you haven't in the past, rate and review the show on iTunes. It makes the world happy, and it makes the internet happy, and you don't want to make the internet not happy. But seriously, consider supporting the show in any way that you can. Rating and reviewing the show, supporting the show on Patreon, and you'll find links to all of the ways to do that at can I say this at church.com. Please let me know your feedback on any of the episodes that you've heard. You'll also see that at the website. But today's music is from David Lunsford. You'll find links to him in the show notes, as well as his tracks from today's conversation mixed into the Can I Say This at Church Spotify playlist. I'll talk with you all next week. Goodbye, my friends. Sun like gold, moon like silver